0: Well, good morning, church. As Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Apologize up up front, I'm a little under the weather. My body realizes that it's fall, even though the weather has not changed. So forgive me if I have to take a little break here and there. But I'm excited to be with you this morning. Excited to bring God's word to you uh, as we dive in this morning Next week, we're going to be beginning beginning our new fall sermon series, which I hope you're excited about all that's happening here at Christ Central. The series is titled Supper with Friends. And in this series, we're going to be looking at the various meals that Jesus had with people throughout the Gospels. And I just want to give you a heads up one week in advance that this series is going to be challenging. It's going to be challenging to all of us, uh, specifically, It's going to challenge us to live into this vision that God has given us as a church to be about the good of Durham. It's also going to challenge us to live out this core value of outward service. And so as I I was thinking about this series that we're going to begin and the challenge that is soon to be before us, I was reminded how the uh, sermon series in 1 John ended. How John the Apostle warned us of the enemy who wants to take this vision from us, who wants to rob us of this mission that God has called us to. He wants us to be inwardly focused, not outwardly focused. He wants us to be about Christ-central church and not the good of Durham. And so as I was thinking about this enemy who is real and who is at work, I was drawn here to Matthew chapter 4, to this famous battle between... Satan and Jesus, because it's here in this text that we learn a lot about our enemy, about his tactics, about how he works, about how he seeks to immobilize us, cripple us, to hinder us from the ministry that God has called us to. And so I want to spend some time here before we launch into our new sermon series. Hopefully that we might be better equipped to recognize the evil one and the ways that he is seeking to work in our lives, in our city, and that we might be able to, like Jesus, thwart his attacks. And so that's what I'm hoping for, praying for this morning. So I ask without any further ado, as is our custom, would you stand for the reading of God's word? This is Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. This is God's word Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, in him only shall you serve. then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of your way so that your word, your truth might be proclaimed. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. A familiar line, I'm sure, for many from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet seems to argue that the fact that Romeo's last name is Montague, that he's a member of a rival family, a sworn enemy of Juliet's family, matters not. And yet, for those of you who are familiar with the story, the tragic ending seems to argue the exact opposite, that in fact, names mean everything. Names are very important. They're important because they define us. They speak to the essence of who we are. I'm not so much talking about the name on your birth certificate, but rather the names that we are given by those around us. There's a beautiful picture of this in the Catherine Stockett novel, The Help. It has since been turned into a movie. For those of you who hadn't seen the movie or read the book, it's a story of the plight of the Ameri- African-American housemaid in the 1960s Deep South. And the main character in this story is a housemaid named Abilene who works for a woman named Elizabeth Miss Leifold. Ms. Leifoldt is a stay-at-home mother of a little toddler named Mae Mobley. And what becomes very clear early in the story is that Miss Leafold is not too fond of her daughter. She sees little Mae Mobley as a nuisance. And as a a result of this, the name that Mae Mobley hears from her mother, the name that is given to her is Unwanted. And there's this powerful scene where Abilene, Mae Bobley's housemate, is holding this precious little girl in her lap, and Abilene begins to speak a new name over this little girl. She says, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. And then Abilene, knowing far too well what it feels like to be given a hurtful name, Ask Mae Mobley to repeat back to her these new names that she has given her. Kind, smart, important. In hopes that if Mae Mobley hears these names enough, if she hears them out of her own mouth, that she might just see herself that way. That she might see herself as kind, smart, important, not as unwanted. What our text reveals this morning is that one of our enemy's most dangerous tactics against us is to give us a new name. To take away the name that God has given you and replace it with another name, a name that exists to tear you down rather than build you up. And here in Matthew chapter four, Satan seeks to convince Jesus to identify himself in three new ways. The first being, you are what you do. The pursuit of success. The second being, you are what people think of you, the pursuit of status. And then lastly, you are what you have, the pursuit of stuff. I don't know about you, but I know from personal experience that the enemy tells these same three lies, not just to Jesus, but to each and every one of us every single day. You are what you do. You are what people think of you. You are what you have. And so I want to look with you at these three names that the enemy is trying to convince us of. Look with me now at verse 3 as we look at this idea that we are what we do. The text says, And the tempter, that is Satan, came and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now at first glance you may wonder, what does this text have to do with success? Because on the surface, this first exchange appears to be about nourishment, not about the pursuit of success. But what's important to note here is that at this point in the Gospels, Jesus has yet to do anything. He has yet to accomplish anything. He's yet to begin his earthly ministry. He was a nobody. He was the son of a carpenter who most likely worked in the family business as long as he could swing a hammer. And it's in light of this context that we begin to understand what Satan is up to. His request is not simply for Jesus to turn a stone into some bread, but rather to do something grand, something spectacular, do something amazing for once. But why? Why does Satan want Jesus to do this? Well, because he's trying to give Jesus a new name. He's whispering in Jesus' ear, as the tempter often does, You don't matter because you haven't done anything worthwhile. What have you accomplished with your life? A lowly carpenter, do you want to matter? Do something spectacular. I don't know about you, but I feel like I hear this line all the time in my head. That I'm defined by what I do and I'm only worthwhile if I achieve some level of success. There's no question that the culture we live in has fully embraced this as truth. All you have to do is listen to the way that we introduce ourselves to people. What is typically, almost always, the first question that follows, what is your name? What do you do for a living? The culture that we live in has decided, has declared that the second most important bit of information about you, second only to your name, is what is your vocation? is why it's so easy for Satan in this culture to convince us that our self-worth is wrapped up in what we do. I think about this in my own life. I can look back and I can see a direct correlation between my confidence in social settings and how proud I was of my vocation. When I was feeling good about my job and how I was performing, I can enter into a social setting and be full of confidence. But when I wasn't So proud about what I was doing or how I was performing, I'd feel intense anxiety in social settings. Isn't that sad? In what ways are we allowing our success or lack thereof to define us, to name us? When you have a good day at the office, do you find yourself walking around with your head held high and some pep in your step? When something goes wrong at work, are you devastated? needing to self-medicate to make it through the day. And just to be clear, I, I know and we know that those of you who are stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads, or students, you're not immune to this. How easy is it to believe that, that your performance as a parent, as a homemaker, as a student is what truly defines you? How easy is it to believe that you're worthless when your home is a wreck, when the kids are out of control, when you fail a test, or you don't get into the grad school that you were hoping for? The truth is, I don't care how good you are, if you believe that you are what you do, you are guaranteed to feel defeated, to feel worthless, because there's always someone better, There's always someone who's outperforming you who has a better job, better grades, better behaved children. And the inevitable result is that if we believe this lie that we are what we do, the name that we will hear over and over again is failure. I wonder how many of you, because you believe you are what you do, when you look in the mirror, you hear the name failure. Thankfully, Jesus refuses to believe this lie. But unfortunately, Satan wasn't finished yet. He comes right back with yet another new name. Here he tries to convince Jesus that we are defined by what people think of us, the pursuit of status, popularity. Look again at verse 5. It says, the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, again, in order to understand what Satan is getting at here, we have to first understand a little bit of the context. And that is that the temple in Jerusalem would be likened, could be likened to Grand Central Station in New York City. When you think about the temple in first century Israel, you should imagine people everywhere. Crowds everywhere, day and night. And therefore, if you wanted to put on a show in Jerusalem, if you wanted the greatest possible audience, no doubt the temple was where you needed to be. And so you see what Satan is wanting Jesus to do here is not just perform a miracle, but do it in front of the biggest crowd imaginable for all to see. And although the first two temptations are similar, you can see how if Jesus had acquiesced, the outcome would have been very different. If he had turned stones into bread, he likely would have felt good about himself. He could have looked in the mirror and and felt proud of what he had accomplished. But if Jesus had jumped off this roof, the roof of the temple, and these angels had caught him in midair, this was not about inner peace, but outward glory. Can you imagine the roar that would have ensued when he came flying through the air? I think as soon as people realized who he was, there would have been a chant started. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How easy it is to live for the thunderous applause. How easy it is to believe Satan lie, his lie that we are defined by what people think of us. I have to admit, I crave applause like a drug addict craves his next fix. What do you mean? What do I mean? See, the way that drugs work is that every time you use, you're always chasing that first high, the best high. And the cruelty of narcotics is that you can never achieve that high again. And the longer that you use, the more drugs you need in order to get even close to that first high again. Approval works the exact same way. It feels so good when we get it. But it's not long before that high fades and then the uphill battle begins to try and get it back. And unfortunately, the, the applause that you got the last time, it's just not good enough this time. It doesn't quite fulfill you like you would like. As a pastor, it is so easy for me to live for the next great applause instead of the audience one so easy to pastor with the driving force being please like me instead of god use me but when i live for your approval rather than god's i'm destined to live a life full of fear and shame church in what ways are you living for the next great applause In what ways are you believing the lie that you are what people think of you? One of the most helpful ways to diagnose this in your life is to examine how your private life mirrors your public life. Do the admirable aspects of your character show up just as much when no one is looking as they do when everyone is looking? Because if not, there's a good chance that you're embracing this lie that you are what you do, that your life is about the show. And once again, no matter how good you are, if you live for this lie, you will always come up short. The approval will never be enough. And the name that you will embrace for yourself when you look in the mirror is loser. Once again, Jesus refuses to believe Satan's lies, but Satan refuses to give up. He has one last attack that he brings against Jesus. Here he seeks to convince Jesus that we are defined by what we have, the pursuit of stuff. Starting in verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, for some of you, it may be surprising to hear Satan offer to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world as if they belonged to him. But if you were here two weeks ago, you might remember how we talked about when sin entered the world in the garden, that Satan took over some level of dominion of the earth, at least for a season. So without getting too bogged down there, Satan is actually within his power to offer to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And so Satan's offer had to be pretty enticing. He's saying, I will make you, Jesus, the most powerful, most wealthy ruler of all time. Here is everything you've ever wanted. Take it. In much the same way, the world that we live in promises to give us everything we've ever wanted. The message of the culture is more is better, have it your way, obey your thirst, the one with the most toys wins. And if we listen to the culture, if we listen to the lies of Satan, we will begin to believe that our identity, that our joy is wrapped up in what we have. That to be somebody, to, be, to, to, to matter is to have this and that and, and that too. And, and as adults, we live into this lie all the time. We measure ourselves by what we have. We measure ourselves by comparing ourselves to those around us. Who has the most money, the nicest car, the biggest home, the best body, the most fashionable clothes? Who has the most degrees from the best schools? You fill in the blank. And once again, Satan knows if we believe this life, we believe that our identity, that our worth is wrapped up in how much stuff we have, how much more we have than others, that we are destined for misery. You may have heard this Quote before, John D. Rockefeller, considered the wealthiest American of all time, was once asked, how much money is enough? To which he replied, one more dollar. Satan understands again, that if we believe we are what we have, that he has won. It was contrary to what culture says, the stuff that we are chasing, that we are hunting after, it never satisfies it always leaves us wanting more. The truth is that each of us has been indoctrinated with this lie that if we have enough stuff, we will be happy. And yet the reality is because we don't, we look in the mirror and the name that we are given is nobody because we don't have it yet. Church, if, if we're honest, I think we can all agree that on some level we believe all three of these lies. Satan has convinced us that we are defined by what we do, by what people think of us, and by what we have. And what makes this even scarier and what Satan is full aware of is that even if we somehow achieve these things, if we become successful, popular, wealthy, the satisfaction that we are longing for is a hoax. That it will not come. I'm reminded of this quote by a celebrity. He said, I found that I couldn't shove enough drugs, cars, stereos, houses, stardom in there to make me feel good. I guess that's why a lot of people overdose. They get to the point where the hole is so big, they die. Or maybe how secular author Cynthia Heimel says it. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest desire. And then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. So much insight from someone who doesn't know God, insight onto how we as humans work that we live for these names success, popular, wealthy. And if by some strange stroke of luck we actually get them, the truth is we will be utterly devastated when we realize that they don't truly satisfy. Which is why Satan knows that if he can get us, if he can get us to live for these names, if he can convince us that we are what we have, we are what people think of us, we are what we do, that he wins. So what is the solution? We are right now on track for one of the most depressing sermons of all time. We're getting close. There has to be some some hope here. How do we... Like Jesus, resist the temptations of the evil one. How do we stop living for success, for status, for stuff? There's this key phrase that is repeated more than once in our text that gives us a clue as to how we are to win. We see it in verse 3 and then again in verse 6. It comes out of Satan's mouth. It says, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. And if we'd been reading, reading straight through the book of Matthew, you, this phrase would have jumped out at us because we would have remembered what just happened prior to this encounter. Chapter 3, starting in verse 16, this is what it says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, listen carefully, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And now you can see the inner workings of Satan's attacks. Just like in the garden, Satan is trying to convince Jesus that what God said is not true. He's saying you can't be the son of God because you haven't had any success, because you aren't famous, because you're poor. And what Satan knows to be true is that all of our sin is rooted in a disbelief of what God has said to be true of us. A disbelief of the name that he has given us. I want you to think about this baptism for a second that I just read, Matthew 3. This is Jesus' first public appearance. He has yet to accomplish anything. He has not healed anyone, no miracles. He hasn't taught anything. And most of all, he has not been to the cross. His resume is completely blank. And yet in spite of all this, God declares to Jesus in front of everyone, this is my beloved son. This is my boy in whom I'm well pleased. Do you get the weightiness of what is happening there? The way that Jesus was able to resist the temptation of the evil one because he knew that he knew that he knew that his worth was not wrapped up in what he did and what people thought of him. He was not wrapped up in how much stuff he had, but in the unshakable identity that he had, his name that God had given him, son of the living God with whom I am well-pleased. Church, do you want to resist the temptations of the evil one? Do you want to stop believing his lies? To stop believing that our worth is wrapped up in what we do, what we what people think of us, how much we have? Then you have to begin to believe Galatians 4. Paul says, "When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption" as sons and daughters. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, but a daughter. And if a son or daughter, then an heir through God. Hear me, regardless of what you've done or have not done, regardless of how much stuff you have or what people think of you, entirely because of what Christ has done for you on the cross, God declares you to be an heir. Today and always, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Let me make it plain for you because some of you don't believe me. Regardless of the fact that you are struggling with the same sin over and over again, you actually fell last night regardless of the fact that you're struggling with addiction and can't seem to find victory, regardless of the fact that you haven't picked up your Bible in months, regardless of the fact that you can't get it right, Instead of applause, all you hear is loud boos all around you. Regardless of the fact that you're unemployed and there are no job prospects on the horizon. Regardless of the fact that you are without home and you see no hope in finding a home anytime soon. Regardless of the fact that you can't pay your bills and you're swimming in debt and everybody knows it. Regardless of these things, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, if you believe that Christ died on the cross for you, your name is child of God. And he is well pleased with you. I want to finish like Abilene did with Mobley. I want you to repeat after me. I know this makes some of you uncomfortable and I'm okay with that. (laughs) Because I I believe you need to hear it. Not only hear it, but you need to speak it over yourself. And my hope is that you might believe it today at least a little bit more. So I'm going to Say this, and I want you to repeat it after me. I am a child of God with whom God is well pleased. Amen. We're going to say it again together. Let's say it together. I am a child of God with whom God is well pleased. One more time. I am a child of God with whom God is well pleased. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak that loud and clear this morning. That it would be so much louder than the lies that the enemy is telling us each and every day. That we would hear you declare that we are your sons and daughters and that you are well pleased with us. Father, I pray that we would believe that more today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we do today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.